really delighted to have Julie Pacetti speaking to us today on a hugely important topic, which is um, whistleblowers and sources and how to deal with them and how to protect them in, in the digital age. Julie comes to the Reuters Institute to join this term as a senior research fellow to work on a project on innovation in journalism. She's also head of digital at Fairfax Media and a long-standing kind of journalist with ABC for that. And this and has just completed a PhD on this very topic. And I think some of you here have a copy of the report that was written for this. And we are live streaming the main session, but we will take the keep the Q and A off the record, um, partly for the sensitivity of the topic, but also just allow people to speak freely. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much, Mira. Um, thanks for coming, and I'm told this is a smaller room than normal, which is good for me because it looks jam-packed. <laughs> That's the narrative. Um, and to those of you who are not from the Reuters Institute, thanks very much for, for coming. I can see um, former colleagues, one from Fairfax, and um, just to, to be clear, my title was cumbersome. It was Head of Digital Editorial Capability, in case um, somebody mistakes me from a person with a much higher pay grade <laughs> in the previous life. Um, <laughs> so I'm really glad to be here. That's right. That's right. I'm really uh, glad to be here. I'm extremely excited to be working um, for and with the, the Reuters Institute with a team of stellar um, researchers, some of whom are here today, and other colleagues like Mira and Alexandra um, and Rasmus who, who couldn't be here today. Um, I'm particularly glad to be able to talk to you about a, a topic that's um, become somewhat um, uh, important to me, both as a research topic but also as a topic and, uh, that is relevant to the practice of investigative journalism in a way that I didn't really anticipate um, going into this research project. So as, as Mira said, um, for UNESCO, I authored this book called Protecting Journalism Sources in the Digital Age. Um, I'm going to talk to you about some of the, the findings from that research project um, which uh, is able to be accessed, this book, um, in PDF form freely online. It's not that often that you um, can get a hard copy of a book for free and I managed to bring just a few for, for the fellows, but um, also uh, a copy of the research which is freely available online. And the reason behind that is because the research that UNESCO commissions, um, particularly in this area of freedom of expression, is designed to go as far and wide as it can and to, to truly have global impact. Um, so as Mira said, um, this has also been the subject of my um, PhD research, which I finished just before moving to, to Oxford. So I'm still bearing the, um, the sleepless you know, bags under my eyes. For those of you who are perhaps PhD students in the room, you'll know what that experience is like. But to be able to do research that um, is in the service of journalism, that goes to the very capacity of journalists to tell um, difficult, complex, high-risk stories, um, in an age where we're seeing increasing uh, targeting of journalists and targeting of their sources, a subset of whom are whistleblowers. Um, and we're seeing that targeting not just in uh, the traditional sense of physical surveillance, of course, but in the surveillance state that we um, occupy globally, it can be argued, um, the digital um, developments that have occurred make accessing our data, our conversations, um, our research, our contacts, our um, our, our connections um, so much easier than ever before and if we're not necessarily being targeted although there is um, su substantial evidence of journalistic communications uh, with sources and whistleblowers being the subject of targeting by both state actors and corporate actors um, particularly in the context of organized crime and and other corporate espionage um, there is the risk that through your daily activity whether it's um, you know, mapping your jogging route through some kind of fitness app, whether it's um, using a, a semi or unencrypted app to communicate, whether it's um, the metadata attached to your text messages, 
um, whether it's the fact that you leave um, apps live in the background when, when you move around with your mobile phone. So much of our daily lives um, are increasingly the subject of inadvertent surveillance, if you like. And the risk to journalists and to sources and whistleblowers is that even if there's no intended um, targeting, you have the risk that your communications get caught up in the net that is mass surveillance and so then become um, open and exposed to the sort of sifting and searching that we now know thanks in part to Edward Snowden's um, pivotal revelations um, and in collaboration with, with journalists he, he made those revelations it should be noted um, that have hopefully awakened us to the kinds of risks we live with on a daily basis. You know we trade convenience and security for privacy um, and in some contexts the right to know because the right to know as a, an audience member or as a journalist facilitating journalism is partly dependent on our capacity to do journalism that is also dependent on our right to privacy. If we think about these dual human rights of the right to freedom of expression and the right to privacy, although that might sound um, slightly odd coming from the field of journalism where our job is to expose, obviously we like to rely as well on the human rights um, that are enshrined at an international level that defend privacy, which goes to our ability to have these conversations. So to go through some of the, um, the images that I'm, I'm displaying here, I'm sure many of you recognise that scene from all the President's Men in your top left hand corner there, um, which is the dark car park. Now the dark car park um, that uh, is where Deep Throat met um, the reporter in um, that story, the Watergate scandal as it, as it became known and um, popularised through film. This dark car park is a place that many of the journalists and editors um, and security experts and human rights activists I interviewed for my research refer to as the place they're returning. So they talk about reverting to dark car park tactics. They talk about, for those of you familiar with um, other scenes from that film, putting a red flag in a pot plant on a balcony. Um, symbols and signals that are, that are designed to try to um, facilitate clandestine meetings, for example. And the reason for that is because wherever you take this and wherever you are in traffic in, a, in an urbanised environment, um, wherever you are in the context of, um, of you know, visual surveillance technology, you are at risk of, of being tracked. And for much um, investigative journalism, there should be an increased awareness around the risk associated um, with digital era threats when it comes to connecting with sources. Um, and, and I think it's worth pointing out, particularly in a room which includes um, 10 or 12 international journalism fellows attached to the Reuters Institute, that for people like me in the West, um, where I practiced journalism for the most part was in Australia for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. I did investigative journalism. Um, it had consequences, um, including you know commissions of inquiry. That's fantastic, but most of that work was done in an era an era that was uh, comparatively innocuous. For me, the consequences of investigative journalism were really probably um, largely for my sources um, for the risks that they took which could have resulted in imprisonment in circumstances. It could have, in certain circumstances, it could have resulted in financial penalty, perhaps the loss of a job. But from the journalists um, doing work in the most high risk environments internationally and the sources and whistleblowers who serve that work um, in environments that are perhaps developing contexts that are also conflict zones, um, despotic governments, totalitarian states, the risks 
for your journalistic communications being intercepted for potentially both you and your source go way beyond jail time and financial penalty. They can involve torture, they can involve death, they um, can involve targeted murder. You know, these are the genuine risks that arise um, in, in the daily lives of investigative journalists working in some parts of the world. It's extremely dangerous to be a journalist. Arguably, it's even more dangerous to be a source or a whistleblower in some of these um, countries. So we go from the dark car park, which is where um, many of the journalists I interviewed talked about reverting to. So the analogue methods uh, make physical contact where you can avoid digital communications. From there, we go to um, one of the other big stories of, of the, um, at the other end of the spectrum over the past 50 odd years, which is the Panama Papers, um, a story that was absolutely dependent on a confidential source a source um, known as John Doe, we still don't know who he or she was, a source who insisted upon um, having only encrypted communications according to the methods that he stipulated, demonstrating, just as Snowden did several years earlier, the need for journalists to be equipped if they're going to attract sources who have um, information that they want to share digitally, savvy sources, particularly in the national security space, they need to have the skills um, to be able to access that information through secure means. But we also um, face the reality, that's a pun intended, reality winner um, on the top right hand corner there, who some of you will be familiar with as the subject um, of whistleblowing. Um, she's now in jail in the US she was exposed as the source um, involved in uh, a leak to The Intercept. She was charged and despite the fact that she had skills, and The Intercept is probably the most savvy of all um, international um, publications when it comes to understanding these risks and trying to mitigate them, not even The Intercept could um, protect her from exposure. And in the end, as many of you will be aware, it was you know, the metadata in the form of the dots on, um, that a printer had made um, that, that was able to be analysed and led to her particular uh, place of work, desk space and so on, equipment that she was using. So there are risks everywhere and it's a question of how we address those risks because the chilling of investigative journalism has you know, extremely significant consequences um, for the sustainability of um, open societies and democracy, which is already <laughs> under threat um, in many contexts. Um, but it, it goes to our ability as individual citizens to be able to um, call powerful people to account, obviously. In places like um, India, and I think India um, is, is currently one of the best examples of what can happen when the surveillance state becomes all-encompassing. And um, Suma, I'm not Suma, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but Adha, Adha is the name of the system. I know how to spell it. I'm very unclear about how to pronounce it, but I'm glad I've got that right. Um, Adha is a, is a system where over one billion people are currently enrolled um, in India, where the constitutional, the highest court, the constitutional court just last month upheld the validity of this system. This system means that citizens are required to, to um, not just present fingerprints, but also iris scans, health records, bank records, and, and this information is held in um, a central database which is accessed by various departments. There are now some restrictions on private companies' access to that information, but it's an incredible resource um, which contains all manner of identifying material. And a journalist recently was able to buy access to a billion people's data through a WhatsApp group 
for the grand total of eight US dollars. And she was able to um, access this, this information in a way that ha had she had you know, nefarious intent could have um, been extremely damaging for a whole range of reasons. So that's a current example. And we see governments around the world, including um, my own in Australia, um, introducing um, biometric passports and you know, everything is paperless. And this is great from a speed and technology perspective. It's also great from a <laughs> data collection perspective. And there are risks attached to that that I think it's important to talk about. And this final example on the screen here um, relates to my, my own uh, country. and. Um, I have to say, as a, as a citizen of Australia, I'm sitting here talking to you with a degree of shame about the way uh, my country is currently dealing with refugee policy, not just as a citizen, but also <coughs> as a journalist, um, because the government um, or a series of governments have effectively criminalised the reporting of um, asylum seeker issues regarding offshore detention that's dependent upon whistleblowers. So there are criminal sanctions in place for both journalists and um, whistleblowers and, and sources um, on, an, on the justification that this territory, this, this political um, space, and it has been highly politicised even though you could argue it's a humanitarian issue, not a political issue, um, that this is so politically fraught uh, that they've, they've essentially applied um, justifications around uh, national security and anti-terrorism um, measures to suppress, to, to, to clamp down on um, investigative reporting that's connected to this issue. Um, and there have been journalists who have been working um, on these stories, um, particularly one called uh, Paul Farrell, uh, formerly of The Guardian, uh, now with the ABC, um, who has had um, his metadata um, and various other um, communications, he believes, and he has written about this in detail, so you can go and find the examples, um, subjected to interference. And he has been placed under um, investigation, um, police investigation, as a, 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 what he believes is a source fishing exercise, essentially. So this is a trend that is not just um, problematic in places where we're used to talking about uh, threats to journalism. Um, as we now know, you know, in parallel, we see crimes against journalists increasing um, within Western Europe. Um, we're seeing the work of journalism targeted increasingly as well. And I think it's um, therefore fundamental that this debate, this discussion is not just um, a discussion to be had at Oxford University with um, students of journalism and, and practitioners of journalism and researchers of communication, but globally, publicly, in a way that raises awareness, because we have a responsibility, I believe, um, and I think it's borne out in the research, to ensure that um, whistleblowers and um, our sources, as much as is possible, um, are appropriately educated. And that might mean for a first-time whistleblower or a first-time source that that awareness comes only from some kind of osmosis, you know, from reading or listening to public discussions um, and coverage about these risks before they take a step. So let me talk a bit about um, this research. And I've got about half an hour to, to talk. So uh, this, the research that underpins um, this book, this study, um, it came from a resolution at UNESCO. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with that acronym, um, it's the UN's um, scientific and, and uh, cultural organisation that has a specific remit to defend freedom of expression. So they uh, passed a resolution in 2013 that identified the importance of, of privacy um, and as it relates to investigative journalism. 
um, and talked about the need um, to ensure that this wasn't being uh, breached through unlawful interference. And there's a lot of good international law that supports um, what we're saying is, is required. It's not necessarily as widely understood or known as it should be. And so out of this resolution came a commitment to conduct global research um, on internet-related issues. One theme was around uh, whistleblower and um, source protection, journalistic privilege, and the impacts of, of surveillance that had been earlier in that year revealed by Edward Snowden. So for this study, which I did um, while I was a research fellow for the World Association of News Publishers and the World Editors Forum in Paris um, over a couple of years in 2014 and 2015, looked at um, the previous decades developments in this area um, in 121 countries. So it was quite a vast set of data that, that we had. Um, and we had um, a substantial number of um, research assistants. I'd like to acknowledge their work. None of them were <laughs> really properly remu remunerated. <laughs> I'll say that word, it's even difficult to get it out of my mouth. Um, they, worked very, they worked very hard um, and they worked hard partly because this, these issues were, um, were pertinent to them and uh, to, the, to the future of journalism. So um, kudos to them. They were multilingual. Um, we had a panel of experts overseeing the research and ultimately we conducted over 50 interviews with um, experts uh, from the human rights field through to investigative journalism. Editors including um, uh, the person who's now very close to the Reuters Institute, Alan Rusbridger, when he was still um, the editor-in-chief of, of The Guardian. Um, and it's an issue that he had um, importantly, I think, um, spotlighted in the, in the aftermath of the Snowden revelations. So it was a, um, a, a big piece of research, but designed to have impact at the international policy level, as well as um, within journalism and the practice of, of journalism. So here are the headlines for the journalists in the room. Um, we found that the, the legal frameworks that existed, that did support the protection of journalistic sources, these could be shield laws, as they're sometimes known, that um, allow journalists to claim protection from revealing their sources in a legal environment. So they can argue that they can't be compelled to identify a source in court proceedings, for example, because this right is protected at law in, in many countries around the world. About 100 countries have laws that allow this to, um, to happen. But what we found is that these laws, where they do exist, are at risk of compromise and undermining, and that's because of the issues that I raised earlier around um, you know, the, the, the penetration of, of these defences in a digital context. Um, it's threatening our human rights, as I've, as, as I've described. Um, we found that we need uh, to campaign for the, um, we being the journalistic community and the academic community, um, need to campaign um, for the strengthening of the laws where they do exist to ensure that there are digital protections. Um, and one of the, the key recommendations was that acts of journalism, so journalistic communications, for example, not just published journalism, but interviews, um, phone conversations, social media exchanges, whatever they might be, should be shielded from targeted surveillance from data, tension, data retention and from the handover of material that's connected to confidential sources. That's a pretty important recommendation to find in a UN publication in my view. Um, it's potentially powerful if we take it and we, we act on it as a community of scholars and, and journalists. 
So we also um, found, and here's the, the sort of headline data, that 69% um, of those countries I mentioned that we'd studied um, had we'd been able to identify um, developments. Most of them uh, really were negative developments. It was around you know, the erosion of, um, of protections, for example, and new emerging risks um, during the period that we examined. We also found that while investigating this issue, what appeared originally to be a kind of narrow remit to investigate the erosion of um, legal protections for journalistic source um, defence really was a much bigger issue, um, a much bigger issue at the intersection of a range of convergent threats. And those threats were not just mass surveillance and targeted surveillance, but also the trend towards um, government mandated data retention, which um, is required for increasingly long periods of time so two to five years is not unusual. So that is, you know, the data that we um, generate through all of our activities um, is being required to be held by what we call third party intermediaries. So that might be an ISP, it might be um, so yeah, a phone company, it could be um, a social media company um, with a view to enabling access to said data if there's a justification for doing so. Um, and this um, theme of national security and anti-terrorism measures being increasingly used to justify the overriding of rights um, that go to defend um, investigative journalism that's dependent on confidential sources. So we found that there need to be um, both substantial strengthening of the existing legal protections um, and limitations on the ability to override those existing protections, as well as the introduction of such protections where they don't exist. And there are many countries where no such laws exist. It's also fair to say there are countries where those laws exist and they appear good on paper, but in reality, they're, um, they, they offer very, very little protection because of the way um, in which they're overridden. So we also found, um, and this is particularly relevant to anyone who's got expertise on the UK environment, um, where there have been uh, big debates around privacy and security, the REAPA um, legislation, for example. Um, transparency and accountability are really important. The ability to challenge when there is an attempt by a security operative or a police service to access your data as a journalist, um, which requires notification you know, of you and or your company if you're working for a news organisation and or your lawyers. Um, in many cases, these sorts of orders where they are granted to access journalists' um, communications um, are not done in the open. They're, they're done in a clandestine way, which means that it's, you, you probably don't know when, when your data is being accessed um, in, in many countries around the world. So there's a need for um, this, this increased transparency and accountability. As I mentioned, we found that journalists around the world are increasingly adapting their practice, and I'll provide you with some examples of that in a moment. Um, and as I highlighted as well, the risks are really significant. They don't just go to, um, to risks around financial penalty for um, whistleblowers. They extend to journalists and they, they, they run the gamut of um, minor risk to, to absolutely life-threatening consequences. So um, among the journalists and editors I interviewed were um, Marty Barron um, at the Washington Post um, and Jared Ryle, who 
um, essentially oversaw the collaborative efforts um, that brought us the Panama Papers at the International um, Consortium for Investigative Journalists. And Jared is, is, I mean, he's kind of, he is optimistic despite the fact that he's been exposed more than many journalists to the, to the real risks. He's optimistic about the future of investigative journalism, partly because he knows how much data is in the, um, in the sphere of access to security services, and he knows how incompetent they are, he believes, in terms of analysing that data. So what he's saying is um, there's a lot of data available, and um, when it's come to some of his investigations, um, you know, they've come, some, some security um, services and, and national governments have, um, you know, have, have made threats, but in actual fact, often they were mining, the journalists were mining data that had some sort of public availability attached to it. So in other words, a lot of, a lot of the problematic data may already be in the public domain in one way or another. So he's optimistic because he believes that investigative journalism will remain essential, and I think we see a lot of evidence of that um, increasingly, really, in public consciousness and the way people are responding to quality investigative reporting. Um, and he's also um, optimistic because he sees the great um, flip side of these risks, which is the ability to access and transmit data, to accept mass data dumps from confidential sources on a scale never before possible. So I think it's important to highlight that at this stage, despite all of these risks and the need for increased defences, um, we still have to acknowledge the, the great value of um, the digital age to, to journalism. It's the golden age, um, according to Jared, despite what he says there as um, recognising that everything that you do is going to be traced and recorded. Um, and Marty Barron's observations, um, for those of you who are in the room, you'll see on, on the slides, um, went to the sort of practical uh, measures that Alan Rusbridger also talked about um, happening in parallel at The Guardian, which some of you um, who are here as journalism fellows, um, Alexandra, I think you might have been at the sort of Zeitung during the, the period of the, the Snowden revelations. <coughs> Pardon me, but the kind of conduct that occurred was, um, you know, having um, computers that had never before been connected to the internet, extremely, you know, clean computers, um, working in rooms that were guarded, um, ensuring that there were no mobile devices or any kind of um, um, devices that would allow connectivity to the internet present. Uh, people talked about keeping mobiles in fridges and freezers. People talked about using what are called Faraday cages, which are um, sort of foil containers that you can keep your devices in to prevent them pinging um, into, the, into the, the network, um, which allows people to track where you are. So um, there are all of these adaptations and increasingly um, there is a move within larger news organisations to try to integrate the sort of um, uh, IT security um, work that goes on, which has historically been about trying to avoid um, hacks and um, you know trying to avoid, avoid a newspaper's website, for example, being compromised. Increasingly, there is a need to bring that expertise into the newsroom to ensure that journalists individually um, have better skills, have better capacity um, to defend themselves. So one of the things that I'll draw your attention to in this book, however you access it, is an 11-point framework that we developed um, as a sort of tool to allow you to see how your country measures up against um, these recommendations. So 
you might be interested if you're a journalist or a researcher to think about this as a potential um, project to, to look at your country, your region, um, perhaps multiple regions to, to try and um, assess where a country or countries stand against these recommendations. I won't go through them now, but you can have a look at them for yourselves. Um, apart from this emphasis on increasing and improving laws, um, one of the areas we found that needs attention is that you will have in some countries laws that protect whistleblowers. So they defend the right to blow the whistle um, on a government department if certain circumstances um, arise and certain steps are taken or they protect a journalist from revealing the source in, in the mode that I described earlier in legal settings. But often they don't work in parallel or, or there is a one kind of law but not the other kind of law. So what we're saying is that they need to um, work in tandem and that both sets of operators, journalists, uh, people doing journalism, which is not necessarily a strictly um, professional occupation anymore, it's, it's you know, human rights lawyers um, doing journalism in places where journalists do not uh, you know, go, cannot go anymore. Um, and whistleblowers who need the protections to enable them to make the revelation, because while the journalist is shielded under, under these shield laws, the, the whistleblowers are not necessarily um, you know, offered any kind of legal defence. And as I said, the journalistic process is not just the outputs need to be covered. Um, the need for increased and improved education of journalists, I still hear from newsrooms around the world that this is something, an issue that really only needs to be understood and responded to at the higher echelons of journalism practice. And by that they mean, you know, your hardcore investigative reporters, your reporters going into war zones where they have to make constant decisions to trade off the safety, the increased safety that can come from devices and apps. Um, and, you know, there's a, the case in the, in the Saudi embassy in Turkey may well um, provide us with some insights into how valuable having technology um, on your person might be. Um, but you, you're trading that off against um, the, the need to mask your movements and, and cover your um, steps, for example. Um, but it's also about journalists doing everyday reporting. It goes to, in the case of, an, and Alan Rusbridge has said this even uh, three years ago now when I interviewed him, that local government reporting, you know, or, or the health reporter at The Guardian, where you're seeing increasingly um, crackdowns on leaks, where reporters are being um, targeted on a particular beat because of controversy surrounding legislation, for example. And just to give you one Final example from, from my home country, which is very recent, um, a colleague at a, at a major Australian uh, publication messaged me um, on what she deemed to be a secure app, by the way, <laughs> messaged me to say that um, she had met a lawyer from the department that oversees um, the, the home, the, the offshore detention. So that the home, I think it's home affairs now, is that what we're calling the fellow Australian in the room, whatever the, whatever the department is now called in Australia, um, that oversees immigration and, and detention and asylum seeker policy. So she met this person at a private party um, and she had a conversation about her work and mentioned the organisation she works for and the kind of reporting she'd done. She herself was a, a, a trained lawyer, uh, the journalist I'm speaking of here. She got a message the next day from the mutual friend that introduced them to say that this friend had asked her to provide her details so that she could fill in a form. In other words, the lawyer working for the Home Affairs Department 
contacted through a third party, the journalist, because even though she'd only had a casual interaction with her, did not discuss policy, government, politics at all, she had to fill in a form for her manager that said she'd encountered a journalist to name the journalist, the organisation they worked for, and if possible, their contact details. Um, there's a sort of degree of, <laughs> of un unnerving in that, that, um, that, that yeah, I'm just going to leave you with that thought. <laughs> That's in a progressive liberal democracy. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we, we've got some issues that we need to, to struggle with. So the news industry, how do we respond if we're journalists, if we're news organisations? Um, as I'm doing here, I think it, it becomes really important to, to make this a public conversation as much as possible. Um, to campaign, you know, this is an area I feel, like journalism safety, that we need to be activist about. Forget for the moment debates about objectivity. This, is, this goes to the very capacity to do accountability reporting that enables the sustainability of open societies. So it's a, it's a fundamentally important issue, a human rights issue. Um, we need, as I said, to uh, potentially educate sources um, in, in digital security, if necessary, um, and explain the to the public more broadly what's at stake. Um, and one of the things, one of the methods um, that we believe is going to assist in this regard is to encourage as many people as possible to use encryption. And it's becoming less clunky, less cumbersome. The more people who use encryption, the less likely it is um, for sources, whistleblowers and journalists who are red flagging the fact, you know, if, you, if you're using encryption at the moment when there's not mass uptake of encrypted communications, there's a chance that you're kind of almost signalling to anyone who's watching, there's a conversation going here that might be interesting. <laughs> so that's one of the arguments against, um, you know, the, 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 the journalistic um, defence of, um, of encryption versus trying to, to, to have offline conversations. But widespread uptake of encryption is, is one of the potential defences. Just in terms of the impact of this research um, beyond the kind of global conversation that's happening, um, in not, not just as a result of this specific research, but also as a result of other work that um, UN actors like the Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression, Professor David Kay, um, who wrote, um, uh, who has written several uh, really important um, uh, research papers that have been um, tabled at the UN and in various ways endorsed by the UN. But seeing resolutions come out um, of the Human uh, Rights Committee at the UN, recognising the importance of source confidentiality to investigative journalism and the right of journalists, for example, to <coughs> access and use encryption without interference, and the responsibility of governments to avoid undermining those rights um, through means that um, rely on national security defences, for example. So these very issues have, in the last couple of years since we started um, this research, uh, become recognised at that international level. So that, I think, is something that's useful to know in your field, in your work. Your country might not be a signatory um, to the International Declaration on Human Rights that the UN oversees, but there is uh, pressure that can be borne in the public sphere by referencing these sorts of um, defences it's useful to know about. So I'll just um, finish by pointing to one of the other outcomes which is a, a project that um, I'm about to, to wind up, I've got a deadline at the end of this week, um, to develop 20 uh, guidelines um, for journalists working with whistleblowers. Um, you can find uh, at the European Journalism Observatory, which is um, edited within the um, area of responsibility of the Reuters Institute, an article which I'll share online as well that I wrote about this project. 
but it's um, a project that we've collaborated um, with the Reuters Institute, with the World Editors Forum, um, that was commissioned by Blueprint for Free Speech, which is an NGO um, focused largely on the rights of whistleblowers um, and confidential sources. And our goal is to, um, and we've done this, we've, we've collaborated with um, about 30 journalists, international journalists and editors who are investigative reporters um, who've worked um, on complex stories and difficult circumstances to try and learn from them what emerging good practice looks like, what kinds of principles and guidelines they'd recommend to help us at a very practical level do the journalism we know needs to continue. Um, so that will be published in uh, January, I think, next year. It goes into, into um, publication mode very soon, in the next couple of weeks. So it's something to look out for. And I'm interested to know um, from you guys in the conversation, which unfortunately we can't live stream, um, as Mira outlined, what some of your experiences have been and what your needs might be in terms of these guidelines, how they could meet, meet your needs as well. So you can find this um, research online. There's various other pieces I've written for um, the um, you know, investigative journalism projects around the world where um, some of the practical um, uh, elements of this study um, are discussed. And um, the co I should have said at the outset, <laughs> the hashtag for, for this discussion, wherever it's appropriate to have a public discussion about source protection is hash protect sources. So you'll find um, various uh, journalists over time talking about these issues along with researchers. So thank you very much. And thanks to everybody who stuck with the live stream. <laughs>